0: You're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week, we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sam Collier
1: and Sarah Cho. And today, we are so excited to have back on the show, Chris Leva. Chris is a playwright and director based in Columbus, Ohio. He was on the first season of our show, and he returns. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you. We're so excited Yay. to have you back. Um, so, you know, typically we ask our guests, you know, what's your earliest memory? And we've done that. So what we <laughs> want to know is what have you been up to since we last talked to you? Just sum it up in a sentence. Since 2018. <laughs>
2: <laughs> My gosh. I mean, it's kind of a lot's happened since then, right? Um, we we live through a pandemic. Well, I don't want to say we've lived through a pandemic. We're, we're going <laughs> through a pandemic Um, I've done some digital theater from home. I've directed a play in person wearing masks the entire time. Um, I've, I had a world premiere of a play that just closed, um, last week. So I've been strangely busy the past three years and it's been weird to be busy. That's really cool. It was, it was wild because in 2020, I think right around February, I feel really bad for bringing on the, the pandemic for everyone because I just was praying saying like, I think I can't, I, I don't think I can keep this momentum up. I feel like I'm exhausted. If mm. I just wish the world would stop so I could get a handle on my life and figure my life out. Um, and I, I guess that was the answer was you know a month later. <laughs> <laughs> the pandemic came and stopped. So it's stopped your life. fault. <laughs> it is Thank my so much, fault. Chris. The power of prayer.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, were you, are you talking about in terms of work? Like you're feeling overwhelmed with work and a lot of stuff? I, yeah, I was, I was going on.
2: There were personal things. There were um, things at work. I, I was also directing a middle school musical. And while working full time, so I would mm-hmm. get to my day job at like seven in the morning and then leave there at three 30 and then get to rehearsal from four to six wow. and then fin- finally wow. see my family um, at, you know, six 30, put my son to bed at seven and like turn into a zombie and prepare for the next day. And I was just, exhausted um i I didn't have any patience for anybody like i Mm. i was it was grueling um and i i was just saying yes to too many things Mm. uh and i've tried to be really careful as we've come back um when when they talked about doing uh the theater that I work with the most here in Columbus, um, the contemporary American theater company, uh, they talked about doing some digital theater when the pandemic started. And I had to talk about like, what is this going to look like? What is the time frame, What is the time commitment? Because I was so scared, mm-hmm. um, to say yes again to something. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was enjoying. Um, I wouldn't even call it rest, but I, I was enjoying my family for the
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and what we were learning. Um, there were personal things that happened where it wouldn't have happened uh, with plays going on and rehearsals and and everything. So I. I was afraid to let go of some of that, but I'm really glad that I did say yes. Um, We did a, a, the Columbus Christmas Carol is, is what Mm -hmm. we did. Um, It was a a play that somebody wrote and we did that. And I served as a, the video editor and also the digital designer, which is basically make sure that everyone has, we did it over zoom, but we used people's phones to record the video. So it was better quality video. Oh! Um, so all we did, all we use zoom for was to look at the shots and make sure that the shots looked good. Um, and then make sure everyone was hearing each other. And then I edited it all together.
0: And um, then, yeah. And then how did you deliver it to audiences?
2: And then we used, uh, I forget what we used. I feel like there was like a, I think that one we did on Vimeo.
0: Okay. Mm. So they weren't watching it live. They were watching a recorded.
2: Yeah. They were watching a recorded version. Yeah. Um, and, got it. and then when we did a musical, we did working um, a musical mm. and that was hard. That was super hard to do, but we pre-recorded that. And then that was done on Showtix for You. Because of Musical Theater International MTI rights. So that was shown sort of live because you had to show it at the exact time through the show ticks for you, but it was a pre recorded video. Mm. And it needed to be because of all the characters and things that everyone did. Everyone was playing like seven different characters, there were six different actors playing like seven or eight different characters a piece. And they, we shipped costumes to them because some were in New York, um, some were here in Columbus, um, some were in <gasps> Chicago. Oh, wow. And so we would do that, and then I would take all their footage and time them together and their singing and the music and get it all set together. Um, the opening number, we recorded it. Each person had four or five different costumes. So we did about 12 takes per person and I had to edit all that together. And there's this fun part where they are just in, in between the dance moments on the beat, Mm. I would cut to them in a different costume doing the same dance move.
0: Oh, that's so fun.
2: So there was a lot of fun stuff like that, but my gosh, it took, hours upon hours. And I was editing after we finished rehearsals. Everyone would upload it to Google Drive, and then I'd download it, and then I'd edit it the, for the next day. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to keep up. But it, it was a wild and really fun experiment
0: yeah. to do. Yeah. And, well, uh, and so would how would you say, having worked on those projects, um, changed the way you think about theater, um, during this time?
2: I really enjoyed digital theater. Mm. Um, I don't like zoom theater, but I like yeah. digital theater. You know, if you're able to put a few cameras somewhere and be thoughtful about the camera as the audience, eye, um, it's wonderful to be able to sit in your living room and pay your $25 and see, a Broadway show. Like I I watched Clyde's by Lynn Nottage um, (laughs) on Broadway. I wouldn't have been able to do that. Who would would have been able to see that just for accessibility, um, not just, you know, accessibility for people who can't make it into the theater, but people who can't pay for the theater or people Mm -hmm. who can't make it, make a trip. There are so many things that are going on. Um, I, I wish that, when we did Prima Donna, we could have done that, but we just, it was just not possible to do. Mm-hmm. And and there's so many other things with like rights and actors, equity contracts and other things that, that have control, but it was, it's been wonderful to have it as a possibility.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it I, really opened up. I think um, a lot of people's, kind of vision and imagination of what you can do and well and just the opportunity to work with people in other cities and other places is really cool i think
2: you got to meet a lot of different actors um catco also did a a new works festival where we did three different readings of shows and got to work with actors we hadn't been able to you know i worked with actors in um, Milwaukee and worked with them in Chicago again and New York um, but we were seeing people in those auditions, we were pe- seeing people from all over um, and that's the second reading that we did of prima donna was during that New Works Festival in 2021 and I was like this is remarkable to be able to have this interaction with people mm-hmm. um, and hear these actors that you wouldn't have had in general you know these aren't columbus-based actors i mean some were but it it was an interesting mix
0: yeah
1: well you mentioned your play which i kind of want to talk about um prima donna you said opened um what like did you write this play during the pandemic or did you write it before
2: i wrote it before Before. um okay I've, I was trying to write it for the past five years wow. and then I was invited by a friend to take part in a new works initiative at a theater called, um, Curtain Players, which is a small uh, community theater here in Ohio. And he's like, it's, it's in January, 2020. Um, and this was like in summer 20, summer 2019, I think just after we had our conversation apparently. (laughs) Um, and he's, he invited me to it and I had so many false starts on the play. I had pages, but none of them were right. And he's like, yeah, if you could get it done, that'll be fine. And I think the reading was second week or third week in January. And the first draft of *Prima Donna* was finished on December thirty first, twenty twenty. So, wow. I really needed that deadline to force myself to stop overthinking the play and write it. And uh, it was it was wonderful to work on. And after that, I had um, I got a grant from the Greater Columbus Arts Council here, which does great work for individual artists, give you small bits of money. I think I, I got about $800 from them. And I, I used the Playpen Rented dramaturg program. I don't know if either of you have oh, ever neat. used
0: that. We, we talked about that, um, but I don't think either one of us has Mm-mm. actually used it.
2: Yeah, I had never used it either. Um, and I was so glad to get this little, little chunk of money. So I hired... I used the Rented Dramaturg program and had a wonderful conversation with a the dramaturg there, um, Daniela Vidinsky. And we talked through Prima Donna and I made some changes. Um, and then I worked with another dramaturg, Angie Morgan, who now works for the National New Play Network. Mm. And I, I worked with her on Prima Donna because I did a radical rewrite. I don't know if you have ever do that with your plays where it's like, let me fundamentally change the main relationship between these two characters and just go for broke. Oh, wow. Um,
0: <laughs> I'm too scared. <laughs> I feel like I've maybe done that once. <laughs>
2: I, I love doing that. I love mm-hmm. taking a risk like that. Um, I have these two characters. So essentially the play is about um, Irene Adler who is... The Woman Who Outsmarted Sherlock Holmes. So it's based on the story, A Scandal in Bohemia. And in this first draft, I created this character named Pamela. And Pamela was basically Irene's best friend. And the main note that I got from Daniela was, you need to look at this relationship between Pamela and Irene and really define it. I can't I, she's like, I spent the first 20 pages thinking they were lovers. Um, and you know, they're, but they're best friends. And I'm like, well, I really want them to have the really intimate friendship. Um, there was there was an intimacy there. And Mm -hmm. so the second draft, I was like, well, let's make them lovers. Let's make, let's go for that. Um, and I changed that and I added this, um, older, Irene Adler as a narrator meeting older Sherlock Holmes in a train station. So I added that and they took us through the story. I was like, okay, I'm feeling this. This feels pretty good. Um, And Danielle is like, when I said rewrite, I meant like surgical going, going with, going with a scalpel. I didn't mean this hack job. I don't think she called it a hack job. she was much nicer oh than gosh. I'm being about about it. Um, so part of why I hired Anne was maybe it was Daniela's understanding of that first draft. And maybe I'm on to something here and I need somebody with fresh eyes to take a look at what it is. Um, and Anne saw that second draft and she's like, you're almost done. Like, this is remarkable. This wow. is great. Like, I love this. Um, but I, there was one note that Daniela said, like there was fun missing from the first draft. Like the the first draft was lighter and it was more fun and this was a little bit darker and more confusing. And so I needed a way to marry those two together. Um, but still one of Anne's notes was, I don't know about this relationship between Pamela and Irene. It's not working. It's not working. Um, and so I, I sat with it for a while and I did another wild idea. And this was like the wildest of all wild ideas. And it's the one that stuck. Um, and when I sent it to Anne, I was like, I've, I've done a small change. I don't know if it's, it's a small change. It's a fundamental change, but it's a small change. Um, even though the script didn't change a lot, the relationship shifted greatly, And essentially what I did was Pamela, I made Pamela and Irene the same person. So Mm. Pamela is who Irene Adler was before she became Irene Adler.
0: Nice.
2: So the real person and her stage persona. And I I put them on stage at the same time. And that's what the play is right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And I finished it just in time for the New Works Festival. Um, even though I sent the very first draft to mm-hmm. them, I'm like, "Here's this draft." Um, when when they agreed to produce it, they were like, "Oh, this is this is totally different. This is not the same play you sent."
0: Well, and this is so great too because we did a recent episode on working with a dramaturg, and I think. Um, for a lot of young writers, that process is really kind of mystical and mysterious. <laughs> and it sounds like it. This was th- these conversations were so helpful for you in kind of re-envisioning the play.
2: They absolutely were. I forgot how much I missed working with a dramaturg because that's one of the great things about graduate school. Um, my grad yeah. school experience was working with the dramaturgs. Um, I... I loved those relationships. I was greedy for those relationships. I was so lucky to have them in graduate school. And then leaving when you're on your own, you don't have that. Um, And many of my Mm -hmm. plays have been produced, but they haven't been developed. And I think Mm -hmm. there's there's a big change in theaters that will produce your work versus theaters that will develop your work. And I'm not um, tech who's willing to get me a dramaturg, but in the work that had that I had done previously was the work that I needed to get done. So they didn't have one in the rehearsal room with me. It was just me and the director, um, Laura Gordon, working through uh, the script and they gave us an extra week of development time to just make sure that I could make changes. But I think, Every play from here on out, I think I'm going to try to either the Playpen Rent-A-Dramaturg program or I know the Playwright Center has dramaturgs mm-hmm. um, yeah. to help. I know that there are so many uh, freelance dramaturgs on Twitter. Um, if you search dramaturgs, they're out there and some of them will be like, yeah, I want to read. And you just ask them their prices. Um, and hopefully they'll give you a, a really fair one. Um,
0: how do you go into that kind of conversation the first time you meet with a new dramaturg? Like do you are there questions you start with or?
2: Well, for the um, for the rented dramaturg program, they have a Google form that you fill out like, what development have you done? Um, how do you see this play? What do you like to work? with, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of style would you say you have? And they try to pair you up with somebody who fits who and who would be a good fit for you. They're like somebody who reads this type of work because they don't want somebody who does naturalism reading my really cartoony stuff. You know, it doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. quite work. I. um So they, they try to try to pair you up that way. Um, and I know many dramaturgs Um, will have something on their site like, um, hey, just, they'll do an email form and you just say, I'm working on a play and they'll probably have follow-up questions. What are your goals for the play? What do you want to get out of this? What kind of notes are helpful? What questions do you have? Um, And that's the main thing before you have a dramaturg is knowing what help you need. Mm -hmm. It's not just about hello, help me make my play better. Um, You have to have enough insight to say, these are the things that are working. This is what I'm not sure about. This is what I hope is happening. Um, Just let me know what you experience based on those things. But this is what I'm trying to have happen. Because, and I think this goes for any kind of development really, is if you don't know the effect you want the play to have, some. you may misinterpret someone's reaction to your work.
0: Right.
2: One of Mm -hmm. of my biggest, um, and I didn't have this realization until my third year of graduate school, um, going into my workshop, the conversation afterward, knowing what reaction I wanted people to have. I had a play where I said, I want everyone to hate the ending. I want them to be mad at these characters because this character gets punished too much. This character doesn't get a punishment and this character gets off like scot-free. And so everyone, I want them to hate that what's going on. And I think if I hadn't gone in knowing the reactions that I wanted to have, When people told me that they hated the ending, instead of saying, ah, mission mission accomplished, I would have been like, oh, I guess I have to go back and and fix the ending, right, you know? Mm -hmm. But I I think I've gotten a lot better of knowing what I do. I I call it in rehearsals for prima donna. We called it blue lining because I use a blue pen to um, (laughs) to mark where i think issues might be so i would like draw a line because i try not to fix it in the moment i just Mm, try try to draw a blue line to say there's something that irked me here um and i call them uh squeeze points so like if if you imagine your play is like a, a pipe that has beautiful flow through it And then there's something that just snags, like that pipe is squeezed down and it's not flowing anymore. Mm. It stops. Um, Just what are those squeeze points to the play? And I think the other side of that is the point where it squeezes may actually be starting somewhere else in the pipe, but where you experience it is at that point. So you may not be fixing that point. You may have to fix something early, early on that causes it to, you know, be squeezed at that later moment. So I try not to fix right away. It's like I don't it's this area, but I don't know if it's because of something that comes earlier, if it's something that comes later. But something here is squeezing for me.
0: Well, and how do you figure that out? How do you tell the difference between an issue late in the play and an issue early in the play?
2: Uh, practice i think that's <laughs> the only way yeah i i think i think you have to do it for for what happened in the room for prima donna is you have to be very upfront you can say it's this area and what what was lovely was we've worked we worked through my blue lines um i was like well i kind of blue lined this and we just came up with that as a term um she's like well what blue lines do you have is what Uh, Laura, who directed it, she would ask, like, what blue lines? What's your next blue line? I love this. So we would go blue line by blue line, and we'd read that moment, and then we'd read before that moment, and then we'd ask the actors what they were noticing because they were in the the characters' heads. So we had a lot of conversation about what they were looking for, what they were noticing, what they thought. And, and they were really brilliant in the way that they, they took things apart. Um, and there was one where I realized, no, it's this whole, it's the scene that comes before this, or this scene's out of order. Um, and I'll, some of it would happen when it would try to get on their feet mm-hmm. because I, in the four weeks, even in the third week, I made a big change in terms of this scene is out of order. Like, I, I need to redo this order because um, Pamela needed to leave the room and there wasn't something that was propelling her out and they were trying to make the scene propel her to leave. But it wasn't the, it wasn't the actor not finding the motivation. It was that the propelling moment was later it's in the not, play. Oh
0: Yeah. So, yeah, so they were trying to add something that wasn't there.
2: Right. But she needed to, like, the stage direction says she exits. Right. But she, it wasn't in, in the scene. It wasn't there enough to get her out of there.
0: Yeah, that's a great example.
2: So I think, I think you won't really find those answers to squeeze points until you have actors, until you have a reading, um, because Mm -hmm. you could keep manipulating and playing with it and playing with it and playing with it and getting a help from a dramaturg, um, who makes their, you know, makes their analysis and talks to you and finds their own squeeze points. They probably won't use that terminology, but I, I take their notes and say, well, this is a squeeze point. I don't always take their solutions but I take their squeeze points. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do the same thing for audience members because audience members after a read through, I find that they're really bad at solutions, mm-hmm. but they're really good at squeeze points. So mm-hmm. I always listen for squeeze points. Um, the, one of one example is in the very first reading of Prima Donna. So, The main story of Irene Adler is she is in a way doing some light blackmail for her ex-boyfriend, a king. Um, There's a picture of the two of them together that proves that they had a relationship. And she is saying, look, if you announce your engagement to this princess, I'm going to send this photograph and all your love letters to her and it's going to ruin your marriage. So never announce your engagement. Um, and so there's this picture, and at the end of the play, spoilers, <laughs> she she leaves it behind. She's like, I don't need this picture anymore. And I had an audience member who said she wouldn't do that. Like Irene Adler's, she would gra- she would take it with her, and she'd you know have this power, and she would do this. And I would say, no, she wouldn't, because she didn't. In my play, like, <laughs> did you not watch the play? Cause she didn't like, I don't care what you, what you think about Irene Adler, but she wouldn't do that. Um, and, but I took the note meaning, okay, so his, his vision of Irene Adler would take the photograph. I need to make it inevitable that my version of Irene Adler would leave it behind. And that's the note that I took was, okay, it, this isn't inevitable yet. The ending is not what it needs to be. Like I haven't drawn the right conclusion yet. So I was like, that's the squeeze point is this very end moment. And it took a long time to find that ending and feel good about it. But yeah, audience members, dramaturgs, directors, actors, They're all really good at finding the squeeze points and sometimes they may offer a thought about what the solution is based on the questions that they ask. So always, always listens to the questions that someone is asking, not because they're, they may not be asking you because they're looking for an answer. They may be asking the question because something's not, there. Something's missing still. Mm. So you just have to be in the room and be vulnerable and be open and be, uh, what do I want to say? Be a, be a little bit less important for a little bit. You know, I, 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 I think there's, there are a lot of times as playwrights, we, we want them to like figure out the, you know, like we, we think that we have to be the answer machine for questions. And I think we can, we can soak and marinate and take our time and be there for these questions and live in the questions a little bit more, um, and allow ourselves to explore alongside these collaborators. So I, I got to be really, really, I keep using the word greedy, but yeah, I, I'm really greedy for these types of experiences of really smart actors asking really smart questions and making you rethink what you thought you had figured out. Um, and in a really great, wonderful way, um, and be open to mistakes. Mm. Two, I the the beginning of Act Two changed because of an actor mistake. Oh um,
0: really?
2: Oh yeah, it, it was wonderful. There's um, we had. <laughs> I was so excited about it. Um, I, I always say that theater magic happens at the intersection of preparation, accident, and mistake. Like that's where theater magic. Takes place. Mm -hmm. And we were doing a read through and we got, we were like, okay, let's start act two. And Irene Adler has this monologue that starts act two. And then after that, there's a scene with Watson and Sherlock, which is really the first time that we see the two of them, isn't until act two, is what we get a real nice look of them. I just hold them back for so long. Um, We see them slightly in the first scene but this is the first time that they have a scene. That's just the two of them. And Sh- um, Watson totally forgot about Irene Adler's monologue at, that started the scene, started the act.
1: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: And he just started shouting, Sherlock! <laughs> and Irene just ad like, not yet. Like, go, <laughs> <laughs> like, go away. Um, because it harkened back to something ha- that happens in act one. Where she's like, you've you've read Doctor Watson's little story about me, and he comes mm. in and he starts saying the story, and she's like, not now, go away. Um, and so she just instinctually said that, and that's how Act Two begins now, which is Irene Adler comes into Sherlock Holmes's office, he enters, says Sherlock, and she says, not yet, and he <laughs> leaves, and she does her monologue. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's. It adds a nice moment of this uh, this conflict, but also silliness, and mm-hmm. you know it undercuts things because we get a really serious monologue after that. So we need that little moment of funny before we go into this deeper thing, and then we bring back um, Holmes and Watson for this lighter scene. But yeah. oh. I live for mistakes and accidents, especially typos, like a, mm. a character got a, uh, in one of my plays when I was at Iowa, um, an actor got a new catchphrase because of a botched rewrite. <laughs> so I was trying to change the line. What do you need to what you need? And I accidentally left the word you in there still. And the actor thought it was deliberate. So he's like, Hey, what should you need? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Oh, that's funny. So I changed all the other ones to "Whatcha you need because it was just a fun character wow. thing. And I was like, I, I live for accidents and mistakes. Like sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to live yeah. with those and, and find they, they not all, uh, Some of those can be happy accidents and Mm -hmm. happy mistakes. Yeah, Um, definitely.
1: Yeah, those are definitely, I just find those as gifts (laughs) um, to happen in uh, theater. Um, That's so interesting that it was a mistake in Prima Donna because I think uh, just the way the play had set up, kind of this very like presentational and like you speaking, feeling like speaking to the audience, that I felt like I was really in it. And so when that happened, start acting, I didn't it didn't feel like uh came out of nowhere. It just felt like part of the world. And I think Mm. that is a testament to um the actors just really knowing well like the story and being Mm. in the rehearsal room with you and and just really getting into it.
2: Yeah I I was really happy when that happened um when Acacia who played Irene when she just shouted not yet and everyone laughed, I was like, well, that has to be in there um, in the second act, because I mean, one of the things that happened in the second act was it was one question from Laura Gordon where uh, in, how do I want to present this? So in this, the original play in the second act, We had John Watson, the actor who played John Watson doubled as certain other characters in act two, like he played a drunk man and he played a priest and, and some other things just so we had one actor doing that. Hmm. And Laura Gordon, who is really terrific. um, She asked one small question, which is, can we, she's like, I'm worried about the audience being confused that it's not the actor playing these other roles, but because the show is so much about disguise and, Mm. and who, who you are and identity that Mm. she didn't want the audience to be like, is that Dr. Watson in disguise?
0: Got it. Right.
2: And she said, so can someone else play these roles? And I realized that I had Irene playing all these other characters in act one but that didn't happen in act two. Um, so I had to bend the whole play, the whole structure of act two to make it work that Irene could play this drunk man. She could play this priest. And I was just so excited by that to bring some of that back. Um, and I really was like, well, that's an obvious thing. Why was not, why didn't I do that? Um, but we, we get so, in the weeds that I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we forget things that we have set up. And sometimes we need that outer quick, small question to be like, Hey, could, could this happen? And to say like, you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. That should happen. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what kinds of, um, experiences you've, you've all had with rewrites with dramaturgs. If you've had any, any recently, uh,
1: um I'm currently going through a process right now so um and so I'll keep you posted (laughs) (laughs) how it turns out um yeah I think we did an episode on this and I was like telling Sam about how I don't know it was it was it's been a while since like working with a dramaturg I would say for me and so I was like I was just struggling with like coming in being clear with my goals and like because, you know, they're there to, they want to support and help any way they can. And, 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 but as me, I'm, as a person who just like very all over the place, can't be clear. And I, you know, I can't, you know, the play, is, it's so hard for me to say, can you just take it as it is? <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> hey, we need to expl- get into explaining like why it is the way it is. And so mm. that's where I, I get, I, I have to really slow down and really think deeply about like, okay, those moments, these moments that happen, like why, and and trying to explain it to my dramaturg when they're asking those questions.
0: Yeah. Although I think there is something to be said for not over explaining or not explaining everything. Um, you know, I think it's the job of the dramaturg to ask questions, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's, it's just as valid to say this question isn't, is left mysterious or something. Mm. Um, and it, of course it, you don't want to be confusing, right? You don't want to be overly right. mysterious. Yeah. right? And so it, it's a balance. I mean, I think I haven't worked with a dramaturg recently on my own work because I have, I've been in school, so I haven't been writing a lot creatively. But I, as a teacher, and as um, someone who's been working with, you know, my my playwriting students, and um, just kind of talking with other writers here and there about their work, um, I've been approaching it from the other side. And something I always come back to is, um, and something I really try to instill in my students is the job of the writer in that conversation to come with really good questions as well. Um, I think it's so valuable for young playwrights, especially to learn how to ask good questions about their own work so that they can get the kind of feedback that will help them into the next draft because I've seen a lot of students, you know, they're just like, "So what'd you think?" <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. or like when we're workshopping their plays in class, the questions they want to ask are things like, "Did you like it?" You know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, and so part of what I do in my playwriting classes is to really try to teach them and guide them. How can you ask good questions? Not yes or no questions, but questions that will inspire your classmates to give you kind of layered answers that aren't just about taste, but are about their experience of watching it or hearing it.
2: That's a good point. And I think um, one of the other things that I was doing over the past couple of years was working with young playwrights through this theater called Mad Lab Theater here in Columbus. They oh, do a, cool. a high school um, writers workshop with uh, young playwrights where they actually get it produced. Um, and I was mentoring a playwright um, along with uh, Tara Palmquist, which was awesome. To, mm. Because of Zoom, we were able to have, you know, I was able to work with um, our out-of-state writers. And we would, we would talk to the writer Rowan and and talk to her about and and ask questions and say, what kind of feedback would be helpful for you? Um, But knowing like what draft she -hmm. was on because, and I try to talk to people about this too. Like um, I think each draft we're slightly thinking about it differently. If we consider the, um, the act of rewriting as sound mixing Hmm. So if we have like a mixing board and there are three main dials on this mixing board and one is the slider that's us ourselves as the writer and our hopes and dreams for the play, like why we wrote the play for the first in the first place, there's that mixer of us. And then there's the, the slider of the story and the characters. And, and then the third slider that I don't think a lot of people think about early enough, which is the audience and the Mm -hmm. concern about how the audience will experience the play. And I think so many times, and I think this gets to what you were talking about, Sam, about did you like it? Did you like it? Everyone in their very first draft is pumping up that first slider of why I wrote the play and Mm. putting me in it. And everyone slams on that slider. So the first draft, of course, is, did you like it? Because did you like me? Did you right. like my ideas?
1: <laughs> right.
2: Please validate me and my ideas. Um, and, I, and which is totally valid for the very, very first draft because you really have to lay on yourself and lay yourself bare just to get something onto the page. Right. And then I think after that, then it's a matter of balancing those sliders out So pulling back on that one and pushing up the audience one. And I think once you get into your final drafts toward a production, toward whatever, you really have to be laying in on that audience slider. And that's where you start to answer,
0: Mm.
2: how do I want people to experience this? What do I want out of this play? What do I want people to get out of this play? And is it going to do what it needs to do? Because you're just laying in on that audience slider. Like I wouldn't even think about the audience until your second or third draft. But I think that's when you start to clarify the effect your play is gonna have is in those later drafts. And I, I think a lot of people don't quite think about how is the audience going to experience yeah, this.
0: Well, yeah, it's such a tricky balance. And I do get a little nervous when I talk to artists who are like, oh, I never think about the audience. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I think it's important not to overthink about the audience in your first draft because you'd never write anything. But but you're right like i think i mean i just personally feel by the second or third draft you've got to start thinking about the audience because it's a work that's meant to be heard by an audience
2: and even if that audience is still you you know Mm -hmm. if you move away from you as the person with the ideas to you as the person experiencing right because there was i think there was a while like four or five years ago that I was like, would I want to buy a ticket to any of the things that I'm writing right now? Mm. And when the answer was, (laughs) the answer was no, I'm like, well, why am I writing these? (laughs) Like if I personally wouldn't buy a ticket to see any of my work that I'm producing, why am I writing it? Like Mm -hmm. I I need to write plays that I want to see. Yeah. Um, like I saw Prima Donna like five times. I was about to go two other times um, before I got sick to go see Closing Weekend. Um, but I was so excited to to see that play and experience that play. Um, but I think it was uh, Sherry Kramer of all people mm. who um, I owe a lot in terms of my perception of the audience. Which is, she says, the play doesn't happen on stage. The play happens in the back of the mind of the audience. Yes. And I took that exceedingly to heart. You know, I, I firmly believe that I'm crafting something that manipulates their thoughts. Um, and the way they engage with it is through watching it. But it's happening back there. Those ideas, you know, the main idea that we were going through was when do people realize that Irene and Pamela are the same person and being really careful about that? Like, I don't want that to be a question that they end up in act two and go like, wait, they're the same person. It's not M. Night Shyamalan, you know, (laughs) revelation at the end. It's it's something that you need to know for the whole play to to work. And I said, the last ditch is somebody asks their wife during intermission. Like that's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's the last. Yeah. But I gave six distinct clues throughout that's you're going to have the answer because I didn't want them asking the wrong question throughout the whole play. Um, Since it happens in their head. And I think, the other thing that that Sherry said was don't undervalue the power of entertainment. And I don't know if she ever Mm -hmm, said that. mm
0: -hmm, I love that. Uh,
2: I remember she said she took us through this thought exercise of let's say the world is going to end tomorrow. You don't know that the world is going to end tomorrow, but the world's going to end tomorrow and you have to take your mom to go see a play and what play do you take your mom to go see at (laughs) night knowing that the world ends tomorrow? And it's like, and nine times out of 10, I mean, I think there was one person who was really ornery that year and answered like Ibsen's ghosts or something. (laughs) I was was like, really? But I I know precisely what I would take my mom to go see. What? Um, I would take her to go see Jesus Christ Superstar. because I know she would love it. I know she would love it. Before the world ends. Right before the world ends. Let's go see Jesus Christ Superstar. That was like one of her absolute favorite things in the world. And it would just bring her so much joy. I love that. And like that exercise was, you know, we are this is in the, the entertainment, you know, mm-hmm. plays can be entertainment. Yeah. They can be moving. They can be beautiful. They can be hard. But I think for me, I I like to lean on entertainment because I, I see the value and joy in that, that I get out of an, a truly entertaining experience. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important to me personally. But, so audience, The play happens in the back of the mind of the audience and don't undervalue entertainment for the past, I guess, however many, oh my gosh, has it been like 16 years Mm -hmm. since I've been out of grad school? (laughs) Like those two things I just keep coming to and they come really quick and easy to me now um, because they, they were fundamental in my grad school experience from Sherry.
1: Yeah. I I, I would say that um what you just said this you know this past 2 years watching so many plays on Zooms like I've been watching so many plays on Zooms because it, it's it's very accessible and very um easy to do and I learned so I learned so many different theaters by watching mm-hmm. um Zoom but also you're right like I'm can you sustain my my attention for two hours, especially on zoom. Like I feel mm. there's, there's something really interesting If a play. Is that entertaining enough for, to keep me glued in, especially on zoom? Like if you can do that, then I think it's like a, could be a fun play to watch. Um, But that's something that made me think about too. A lot of, of if we're, as we're coming back to life again, and things are reopening and people want to see theater again, like what, like all i can think about is like i think i would want to see plays that's just celebrating a lot <laughs> like i want like yes. fun high energy like celebrating life kind of plays like more joyful i don't want to cuz we were in, like in this darkness for so long and yeah. that's what i'm hungry for now is like plays that just gonna be uplift me and
0: so what you're saying is check off <laughs> 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 just kidding <laughs>
2: Yeah, I got into a Twitter fight with somebody. Oh gosh.
1: No. You know,
2: because that that happens. Yeah. It was yeah. it was cordial. It was a cordial uh Twitter fight. Um, but the question somebody said was, Are you gonna write about COVID? Like, mm-hmm. is that a play that you're gonna write about? Are you gonna write do you want to watch plays about this time? And I was like, Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Like I do not want to write a play about COVID. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to write a play about the COVID experience, which is what happens when your life is turned upside down and you don't know what's coming next and the uncertainty. Yeah. I'll write a play about that, but not about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm going to find a different way to look at those themes and questions, but I don't want to write about this period. Um, and I was like, I want plays that are uplifting. I want plays that make me laugh. And I want plays that are about non-garbage people you know i want plays about <laughs> good people who are struggling and finding their way through life and uplifting yeah and the fight was he said um theater's not meant to be uplifting theater is <laughs> meant to challenge you and i was like okay but i want it to be uplifting
0: right <laughs> we've
2: all been
0: challenged plenty right?
2: It's like, you're supposed to be questions. Is like, you want theater to lie to you that life isn't uplifting. And I'm like, I just want to be entertained, man. I I, I said, you're making theater too small. Mm. Like theater has the possibility to be wider than you think. Like I, I want it to be moving. I want it to be entertaining. Um, I want it to mean something and be uplifting. Like it can be all those things. Yeah. Uh, and if if you don't think something can be uplifting and beautiful and meaningful and bring a tear to your eye and, you know, have a deeper meaning, then I don't think you've watched any episodes of the TV show Bluey for kids. <laughs> <laughs> like, go watch Bluey on Disney Plus and then come back and tell me that something can't be meaningful. Mm. Flat Pack. There's an episode called Flatpak, which is... <laughs> ridiculously amazing and gorgeous and makes me weep every single time
0: oh my gosh i'll go check it out
2: yeah go check out no, Blue but it. i
0: mean i agree with you about the power of entertainment i'm thinking about i mean not to get too dark here right now but you know my mom died last year and when she was mm-hmm. dying mm-hmm. she's going through chemo and um she couldn't really read, which was something she had always loved to do. But she'd watched so many episodes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's mm-hmm. all she wanted to watch. You know, it was like it was entertaining and it and she didn't want to watch anything dark or depressing. you know. She yeah. wanted to watch something that would make her laugh. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of us during this time have have kind of remembered the value of particularly being in a theater with a bunch of other people. And laughing at something together. Yeah. It's like so it's just so valuable to be entertained in the company of strangers. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I think there's something. What's what's interesting is laughter in a theater is one of the only reactions that can fill a space at the exact same time that Mm. everyone is having that same reaction you won't hear an audience of people think you won't hear an audience of people um maybe be shocked maybe um Mm. you may hear some sniffles here and there for the right moment but like applause and laughter Mm. are really the only times like delight is one of the only auditory reactions that we have and can get from an audience. And it's, and it's electric.
0: Yeah.
1: I got goosebumps. <laughs> 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 um, we, got, we got a couple more questions we want to ask um, before we move on to glistens. One is, this is a question that we started asking our guests, um, maybe like season three or <laughs> third year. So we never got a chance to ask you this question, but so three playwrights name, three playwrights living or dead that you would invite to a dinner party.
2: Okay. I saw <laughs> that question. It scared me. Um, I think I would definitely invite Howard Ashman. mmm who wrote Little Shop of Horrors and you know, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. Like I, I want to hang out with Howard Ashman. I think he would be awesome um, to hang out with. Um, I feel like I would have fun if um, Lauren Gunderson was there too.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh. Because um, I think we align in a lot of ways. So I, I'd love to pick her brain about things. And... Um, I think Qui Gwen as oh, well.
0: Nice.
2: I think I think we'd have a lot of fun the four of us.
0: Yes. I, I think we
2: would have a lot yeah. of fun Howard Ashman, Lauren Gunderson and Qui Gwen. So, two of those maybe I can make happen. Um, and then I'll just have to watch the Howard documentary on Disney Plus. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully get something out of that.
0: That's so fun.
1: Yeah, that's really fun. That's a fun group. Um, alright, this is a this is a question, a new brand new question we've never asked because you are one of our <laughs> returning guests. Um so if you could tell Chris Leva from two to three years ago what you know now, what would you tell him? What advice would you give him for your past self?
2: Uh I would I would tell him that What? Oh my gosh! <laughs> it's so hard. Um, like, get out of your head, man. Mm. Like, get out of your head. Um, trust the process and talk to more people. Um, one thing that I really realized was prima donna, and you know the new plays that I'm working on right now. They're, I can't really fire on them unless I talk to other people, and then I, that energizes me and gets me going and excited about my projects. Um, so it's like include your community and, and get them in and be you know share the excitement. And that excitement with your community will reinvigorate you and, and get your plays written. I don't want to say faster, but it'll keep you in that world. A little bit better. So don't think that the play has to just come from you and your own energy. Like refuel um, from other people, uh, and don't be so hard on yourself. And That's a I lot of that. good
0: advice. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I think <sighs> I think it's It, it was just so it's all I remember from the book four times was just pressure, just so much pressure mm-hmm. and it's hard to write under pressure. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many times I've cried from the song from Encanto under pressure, you know, or surface pressure, which it's called like this pressure, yes. like a drip, drip, drip that one won't, yeah. and it just won't stop like that was and is what I feel on a very real basis. Like this anxiety of how am I going to be the best? I have to hold up my family. I have to keep this all together. I have to be the best playwright. I have to do this. And it's just like, you're going to crack, man. You're just, you're going to break. You're going to, you're going to break down. Um, yeah.
0: And,
2: if it if not for the pandemic i probably would have i probably would have had a, a bigger breakdown than i ended up having so yeah it it was wild so just cool 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 yourself down man <laughs> mm-hmm. take a break wow
1: yeah thank you yeah <laughs> i uh i feel like i was in the same boat as you right before the pandemic i mean i I was just like nonstop, just constantly going and going and going where I didn't cry out to the gods and say, stop the world or anything, but (laughs) I think I was sort of almost there. Like I was kind of in the breaking, almost at the breaking point of, um, I was just moving too fast and it's getting a little dangerous. And yeah, that song in in Encanto, I cried because I was like this, how did how did they know that this
0: is? <laughs> my I I the time? My anxiety. Wow, I guess I have to see this movie. I still haven't seen it. Yeah. Oh yeah, seen go. It? Oh my god.
2: That's your other assignment, Sam. Okay. Go see Encanto and go watch an episode of Bluey. Okay. So, <laughs> oh never my god, and back Chris, to me.
1: You and you posted such a funny picture, like of you looking like Bruno. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it was laughing so hard because I was like you you look exactly like Bruno. There's a photo I, of you. Yeah.
2: I think that would be my other advice to myself like three years ago, like start growing your hair out, man. I think you look better <laughs> with longer hair. Like my hair is down to my shoulders now. And it wow. used to be like shaved, you know, shaved and barely like maybe two inches on the top. But I didn't realize how curly my hair actually was until it got past my earlobes. Like it's, it's wild. And I don't, I look at pictures for myself from three years ago and I'm like, I don't know who that person is. Like, I, I have no idea. He's like 30 pounds heavier and he has so little hair. (laughs) Like, I don't know who that guy is.
0: That's so funny growing your hair out.
2: Well, when you can't get a haircut for eight months. No, I think there were a
0: lot of people in the same boat. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Um, I saw friends again after like, you know two years, and I'm like, some, a lot of my friends grew their hair out, looked really well. Like, guy, my especially my guy friends, they just went all out. They just grew it out, and they're like, I love this long mane of mine. <laughs> 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 all right, cool.
2: <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine who lives in Iowa, she sent me a. She went to Target. She didn't buy stuff from Target. She like went to a Target, grabbed like curly hair products put them in a box and sent them to me like <laughs> these are the things that you're going to need this leave-in conditioner you're going to have because i had no idea like i use the shampoo she's like no 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 <laughs> like you have to care. get your products going like product is most of the game
1: <laughs> that's awesome all right Whew. all right so uh yeah let's move on to glisten's uh their last portion of the show chris you know what's about um I'll go first. Uh, my lesson is the movie Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Yes. It's on uh, Disney Plus. Sam, probably. I don't even know <laughs> what this is. Add this to your list as well. Uh, okay. I just, it came out yesterday, I think. Yeah, yesterday. And I watched it with my husband last night. And oh my gosh, we just laughed all the way through. And I love it. I loved it a lot. I don't like reboots, but this was a reboot that I really enjoyed, actually cool yeah it's
2: really Um, wonderful i i my family watched it last night as well um what's really funny is it's very like a sequel to who framed roger rabbit that my friend and i pitched on our podcast a couple years ago but i'm like okay i'll take it it's still good
1: (laughs) yeah it does have yeah it is when i saw the trailer first i was like oh it does it did remind me of who framed roger rabbit like had that all those elements and
0: i'm pretty um, sure i never saw that either oh dear, it's on disney
2: sad. plus sam <laughs> i guess that's
0: <laughs> all right it's all right I'll, I'll check it all out my sister has disney plus um my lesson is we are recording this on may 21st and we got like eight inches of snow here in boulder colorado over the last 36 hours and that is Wild. It's just wild. It is wild. It's it's too late for snow. That's all I can say. But we needed the moisture in the ground. So I mm-hmm. guess better to get it one way than... or I guess just as good to get it one way as another.
1: That's my takeaway. Do people in Colorado say that's normal? Like some snow in May?
0: No, it's, it's a little weird. I mean, yeah. it's not that unusual to get some snow, but to, for it to snow for so long... I think yeah. it's weird. Yeah. Wow. That's it's weird. like all, there are all these broken tree branches everywhere because, you know, they all have leaves. And so then when they get covered in snow, it just makes them so much more heavier than if they, right. if they were to get that much snow on just a bare branch. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, there's just lots of tree branches down all over Boulder.
2: That is wild.
0: It's wild. Yeah. Here in the mountains. What's your glisten, Chris?
2: My glisten is, um, I have a new friend uh, named Grace Ellis, who's uh, who writes comics um, here in Columbus. And she has a new graphic novel that just came out called um, Flung Out of Space. Mm. And it is based on the true story of Patricia Highsmith, <gasps> who is the writer of uh, the talented Mr. Ripley. Yes, she and- is. <laughs> and Carol. Uh, previously known as The Price of Salt. And it talks about her life and the terrible person that she was um, and how she was a comic artist and then tried to write legitimate novels and then ended up writing this book uh, that's now called Carol. uh, And it's just her creative process. And it's just a really wonderful story of somebody whose work I sort of knew Um, but didn't know anything about her. And so it's a really great graphic novel.
0: Cool. Uh, I really want to read that.
2: Yeah, I I... and what's nice is uh part of her inspiration of writing it was she saw the play Um Indecent, you know, from Mm -hmm. Paula Vogel. And she wanted to turn that into a comic book, but it's such a thing of the stage. And she's like, well, is there a comic book equivalent, like making a comic book that could approximate that same kind of framing? And she found um, Patricia Highsmith and I was like, that it's just remarkable. So, what a
0: great idea. Yeah, I read I read The Talented Mr. Ripley about a year, but I think maybe about a year ago, year and a half ago. And it is a incredible book it really is so unlike anything else
2: yeah and i'm reading carol right now i'm on like the last 40 pages of carol and i'm like this is this is probably one of the fastest books that i've read just because it's so intriguing
0: yeah and just the relationships are so
2: yeah i mean she was self-loathing she hated herself um she went through Um, Try to put herself into um, conversion therapy. Uh, I mean, it's just really interesting. um, her, Her life, her personal life, and how it affected her art.
0: And what's the graphic novel called?
2: It's called Flung Out of Space.
0: Okay, cool. Flung Out of Space.
2: Yeah, by Grace Ellis.
0: All right. Check it out. Well, thank you, Chris. It's thank been so you. great
2: talking to you. Yeah, thank you for having me back. This has been wonderful to uh, remember everything I've done the past uh, few years and hang <laughs> part of me and hang out with you all again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Come back again in the next three, four years. We'll check in again. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. and what season will you be on in in three years?
1: Uh, was it maybe seven? Seven. seven. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Maybe in our tenure, we will uh, throw a big party, (laughs)
0: like like a retirement party. Maybe by then we'll be called Beckett's children.
1: (laughs) Beckett's children. Um,
2: Beckett's toddlers. toddlers, toddlers,
1: Children, teenagers. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Chris.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends.
1: And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater, or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com. And you can contact us there. Thanks for listening.